Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. Now, this is still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, as we arrive at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, I don't think I could have chosen a better topic, not only for my two-part Halloween special this year, but also a topic that encompasses every single adjective that I just used to describe my show. We are talking about famed sci-fi horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I have to admit that I'm a relative newcomer to the Lovecraft phenomenon. When I was growing up, I didn't really have a lot of respect for Lovecraft, only because I didn't know anything about him. I always thought he was kind of a schlock writer that kind of weirdos liked the niche circles, and it wasn't really my thing, or so I believed. Turns out that Lovecraft seems to be tailor-made for me. It hits all of it hits right in the wheelhouse on, on several different topics, not the least of which is captivating writing. I haven't found an author this captivating in a long time, where the, the words and the pages keep me completely enthralled in what's going to happen next. Plus. It's he's it's very cinematic. Actually, it's it's more more television centered because it's like a serialized story. He's created this fictitious world and tells stories within that world. Now, a lot of the stuff does overlap. There are elements that are clearly present things that make it distinctly H.P. Lovecraft. There are storylines that will cross over into other stories, but at the end of the day, it doesn't affect the world as a whole. It's like one long Twilight Zone episode. What could be better? We're going to get into some of that, and there's a thing called the the Cthulhu Mythos, which we're going to talk about. And I could not have found a better person to talk to me about this than S.T. Joshi, who is the world's foremost expert on H.P. Lovecraft, dedicated his life to the man. And I think you're going to really enjoy this, this uh, two-parter. Now, I say two-parter. Why do I say that? Well, I have a little surprise for you next week. I'm going to have a reading... A theatrical reading of one of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, and I, I can't wait for that. So let me give a quick little, some promos really quickly, and then we're going to get right into this one. So first of all, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, go through the website. There's a newsletter if you want to keep up to date, fascinatingnouns.com. And at the bottom, you can join the newsletter, at Daniel J. Glenn is Twitter. Fascinating Nouns is the backslash if you're going through on Facebook. And you can always send me an email at dan at fascinatingnouns.com. So, once again, let's get right into this thing with S.T. Joshi. S.T., thank you so much for being on the program, man. I'm glad to be here. So, I'm going to do a terrible job running down your credentials. Do you mind giving me just, um, how did you, you know, what makes you qualified to talk about this? Well, I've been at this for a long time. I'm in my mid-50s, but I really got my start in the study of Lovecraft even as a teenager, that's when I first started compiling my first uh, books and articles on Lovecraft. Uh, and my work was considerably aided by my attending Brown University, because that's where all of Lovecraft's papers and manuscripts are, and that was a, a huge help to me. Uh, so I started uh, doing work on Lovecraft you know, in my teens and, and into my 20s. I compiled an anthology of criticism called H.P. Lovecraft, Four Decades of Criticism. That came out in 1980. That was the first academic book on Lovecraft, in fact. Um, I did a bibliography of Lovecraft. And then uh, in the mid-'80s, I prepared new editions of Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft's fiction uh, for Arkham House because I had discovered through consulting you know, the manuscripts and, and early publications that the current editions of Lovecraft that were available at that time were full of errors. And so I corrected those errors and produced new editions. And I've gone on doing things like preparing... Uh, uh, volumes of Lovecraft for Penguin Classics, um, uh, preparing editions of Lovecraft's uh, uh, essays and poetry and letters, and I've written in a number of uh, monographs on Lovecraft, and I think I, my, my culmination was a, a two-volume biography of Lovecraft that came out in 2010. So I've, I've covered the field, shall we say. <laughs> you don't just like Lovecraft, you love Lovecraft. Yeah. It's safe to say. So in Brown University, were you actually handling the the original manuscripts, like the actual letters he wrote, everything all original? Um, well, I'll tell you what, um, because the Lovecraft material there is so valuable, and because, uh, shall we say, certain uh, individuals uh, have been known to try to make off with that material, yeah. uh, Brown, nowadays, they photocopied the entire collection. And so 
except in rare instances, uh, they allow you to look at photocopies, which, quite frankly, are adequate for general purposes. Every now and then I had to consult the originals, which are in this bank vault, literally a bank vault, down in the basement of the library, and, and they only get those out on rare occasions uh, for very special purposes. Um, and I did need to do that from time to time, but uh, otherwise, uh, most researchers are allowed to look at only only photocopies. Wow, that'd be kind of cool to go down in the vaults and you know you have to put on the gloves and that whole thing. It's like humidity it's control, amazing. the whole deal, right? It's an amazing experience because they, these manuscripts. I mean, this is this is literally stuff that Lovecraft wrote by yeah. his own hand. He almost always hand wrote manuscripts, and certainly almost all his letters are handwritten. He didn't like the physical act of typing it caused him a lot of pain and uh you know it just he, he did everything he possibly could do to avoid typing uh sometimes he would even give his manuscripts to somebody else to type them up and unfortunately sometimes they didn't do a very good job of it and that's why some of these errors crept into other editions of his stories wow. um, <laughs> but to, to, to hold an actual manuscript of lovecraft that's something that he actually wrote with a fountain pen is, is a thrilling experience yeah that's amazing um, and, and so now, now your first name is St. So I mean, can you you can be called the patron saint of Lovecraft? I guess you might say so. Yeah. So did you now? Did you do the St. kind of like as an homage to HP? Oh, or? unquestionably. And also, in part, I uh, it was because uh, I, I wouldn't say my name is difficult uh, by Indian standards. I'm from India. I was born there, but. Um, Americans always have a little trouble with foreign names, uh, so I kind of got irritated by the fact <laughs> that people didn't pronounce my name, my first name, the same way. I mean, everybody pronounces slightly differently. So, uh, But yes, when I started getting into Lovecraft, I think I first read him when I was about 13 or 14, uh, I, I looked at his initials and said, hmm, maybe, maybe I could uh, do well as a writer uh, if I use initials. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, can you give me the, give me the pronunciation? I have to ask now. Okay, well, my first name is Sunand, which is not hard, S-U-N-A-N-D. My middle name, which is my father's first name, that's how it works in India, is Trimbuk, but it's spelled T-R-Y-A-M-B-A-K, okay. uh, which when you look at it, an American looking at it wouldn't have the faintest idea how to pronounce that. No. So, uh, S-T is much simpler. Well, it's kind of like one of Lovecraft's, um, you know, demigods yeah, in a way, it's it's to American ears. Not meant to be pronounced by human vocal. <laughs> right, right, yeah, in a way, sort of. Um, that's amazing. So, when you were a kid, were you kind of into like, um, like Rod Serling and Twilight Zone, uh, Hitchcock? Absolutely. And... In fact, not not so much Twilight Zone, although I did. I'm sure I watched that as a kid. Uh, we're talking about late '60s into the early '70s. Uh, that's when I kind of was in my teens. I started reading uh, things like Alfred Hitchcock's anthologies for young adults. Rod Serling did a couple of anthologies of stories uh, from young adults. And some of these stories, you know, did go back into into the past, you know, stories by Poe and Ambrose Bierce. Hmm. Uh, some of them, no doubt, had some Lovecraft in them. Um, one of the things that, I, that first got me interested in Lovecraft was this anthology. Um, I can't even remember the name of it now, but it had a Lovecraft story. It was published by Scholastic Book Services. What? Uh, these, these books, um, I assume they're still going, although I don't know, but um, that uh, you know, children or you know, school children could buy for like 95 cents. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and I think that was probably my first uh, uh, access to Lovecraft. And then later... Uh, very soon thereafter, I found actual editions of Lovecraft stories uh, in my public library. Well, this is in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, that's where I grew up. Wow. And uh, from that point, I was hooked. Well, it's funny because I grew up on the Twilight Zone. I love the Twilight Zone. And as I was reading um, all of Lovecraft's stories, I, I haven't read all of them, but as I was reading his stories, they had a very distinct Twilight zone -y feel. And we'll kind of get into this in a little bit when we start talking about kind of the mythos and, and the things that kind of connect all of his stories. But everything felt enclosed. It's a single story. But yet in a kind of a weird way, it's all part of the same world in the oh, same way absolutely. the Twilight Zone is the same way. It's all kind of part of the same weird world where weird things no, happen, you know? No doubt. I mean, one critic uh, many years ago said Lovecraft, all of Lovecraft's stories are really kind of chapters of a, of a single novel. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I can see what he's getting at, that they yeah. all kind of take place in this, in this universe. Uh, and each story does build upon the other in a very interesting way that 
that many authors, uh, you know, don't do. I mean, Poe really didn't do that. Ambrose Bierce didn't do that. Uh, uh, Arthur Mackin didn't do that. But but Lovecraft did do that, and then he has inspired other people later on to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's it's kind of funny to me. I'm I'm really into like shows like Twin Peaks and Lost and like these shows where you have like a you create a strange world where these weird things are kind of natural like you know even Once Upon a Time is kind of this and the I work in the television industry so I mm-hmm. automatically think this way yeah. I'm actually surprised someone hasn't adapted the Lovecraft world into some kind of TV series which you could do you know you set it in Arkham you know or or in the surrounding areas and just kind of have you know a TV show where kind of strange things happen yeah I'm, I think it would be tailor-made for that yeah i think but you just need somebody with imagination to to you know carve out this world and and you know uh you know as each episode progresses it it defines that world more and more and uh yeah it could be a a fascinating idea yeah i hope someone if someone's listening to this do not steal that idea as t and i are going to develop this so uh, don't take our money away now now why why lovecraft I mean, because there's lots of guys like him, but you've devoted a significant part of your life to studying this one man. What is it about him that just kind of grabbed you? Well, I think it's, you know, it, there, there are a lot of things. Um, getting getting onto Lovecraft when you're a teenager really does it for you. I mean, yeah. uh, I know so many people, you know, both just fans and, you know, students of Lovecraft and scholars, critics, who really seized upon him when they were 13, 14. That's a magical age when you're just starting to read adult literature, really speaking. You're, you know, graduating from, you know, uh, uh, the, the young adult stuff and into real real literature. And Lovecraft is a good transition to that. But he, you know, and, and initially maybe you read him just for the monsters and all that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lurid stuff. But then you realize this guy was a craftsman. I mean, he had a tremendous prose style. Some people criticize that style as being kind of overwrought, but the more you study it, the more you say, boy, this guy really knew what he was doing. Um, and as I say, um, it, it gets you into a world. It's not just individual stories. Uh, and, and you see that, that Lovecraft was really big on uh, topography. I mean, Human characters don't actually uh, aren't, aren't all that significant in Lovecraft's work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the background, it's the setting that's really important. Uh, and even a kid growing up in in Indiana, you know, who knows nothing about New England, can really <laughs> picture picture these old backwoods, you know, farmhouses of New England that Lovecraft depicts, and and you know the sense of antiquity and things coming out of the past. Uh, it's it's. You know, it's a hypnotizing uh, sensation, I think. No, I think so, too. I mean, and that's kind of what got me. I mean, I spent time in Boston, and so, like, I, you know, I know people lived in Connecticut, and I traveled up and down, and hearing some of these things, it's kind of almost like a nightmarish version of what I saw because the East Coast is pretty picturesque in a lot of places. Uh, but this is, you know, as if Doomsday was upon us, the post-apocalyptic 1930s world. <laughs> that's like Lovecraft's. Yeah, I think, I think the sense, in Lovecraft, that that we are in such a fragile state, the whole human race yeah. uh, is such an inconsequential moment in history, and we are beset by these monsters. It's you know, which are which are just symbols for for all that we don't know about the universe. You know, it's a uh, uh, it's a very uh, you know uh, unnerving sensation, and it, it it speaks to us in terms of things like alienation and and our sense of of, of lostness in the universe. Yeah, well, now let's talk about, before we get too far ahead, uh, for, for people who aren't familiar with Lovecraft's work, let's talk kind of briefly about the mythos that he's created. Because uh, this is what kind of brought me in, because I'm a sucker for serialized stuff. Sure. So, so we've got a couple things that are in common, and I'll, I'll let you clarify it. So I'll give it to him in broad strokes. But the first is, like you said, the New England setting. And so there's several you know, cities and areas that are repeated but are fictional, correct? Yes. So we have, so um, some of them are like Arkham. Now, Arkham is similar to Salem. Is, was it? Are these cities kind of taken from real cities, or is that? Uh, is there any I evidence that, to that? I think they tend to be amalgams of places that Lovecraft visited. For example, um, uh, Arkham, which is his primary uh, uh, fictitious city, is in part based on Salem, at least in terms of the location it would appear. Okay. Uh, it's approximately where Salem is today in, in terms of the geography but it draws upon Lovecraft's you know familiarity with with his hometown of Providence Rhode Island because of course mm. Salem at least in Lovecraft's day did not have a university but of course uh, Providence did with Brown University Lovecraft hoped he would attend Brown University but 
couldn't uh, couldn't get in for various reasons. Uh, so he transferred uh, uh, Brown up to Salem and called it Miskatonic University. Um, uh, the town of Kingsport, uh, which may actually have been his first uh, imagined city, is pretty closely based upon the Massachusetts town of Marblehead, a lovely colonial uh, uh, relic uh, up on the North Shore, uh, which Lovecraft visited for the first time in 1922 and was absolutely transported. He, you know, because Lovecraft had this great devotion to the past and to the, especially the, the colonial past of, of America. He loved to hunt out colonial uh, remains here and there. And he couldn't believe uh, when he came upon Marblehead what a beautiful uh, uh, and almost perfect recreation of the colonial past it was. Huh. And so then he created uh, uh, Kingsport as a re- result of that. Uh, uh, another famous town, of course, was Dunwich, uh, or maybe he might have said Dunwich. We don't know if he, mm. if he, uh, what, what his pronunciation was. But that one was based upon several towns in central Massachusetts. Uh, he had visited a friend in that rough area in 1928, just as he was c- conceiving that story, the Dunwich Horror. Uh, and so he used a lot of that landscape for that. Innsmouth is approximately based upon Newburyport, which is again on the coast of Massachusetts. Now, you'd never know that today because Newburyport is a beautifully restored colonial town, <laughs> uh, you know, just impeccably uh, uh, maintained. Uh, uh, but of course, in Lovecraft's day, as you read from his letters of that period, it was actually decaying. You know, a lot of the houses were run down. Uh, it, you know, it was pretty economically depressed. And so Lovecraft, you know, went there a couple times in the 20s and early 30s and said, wow, this would be a really good setting for this decaying seaport that I have in mind. Well, and the other thing that's great about it is each one of these places has a very unique personality. You know, like, like like Innsmouth, like that was my favorite story up to this point is the shadow over Innsmouth. And when you walk into that town, I mean, it is so distinct. The people are distinct. You know, he, you know, paints a beautiful picture of this terrible, disgusting town. You know, you can see every decaying building, every weird, bulging eyeball, you know, you know every cult goings on that are happening in the city. I mean, it's just, it, but that's unique to it. You know, it's very fishy and very, you know, it's like a, a port town well, brought to life. Lovecraft had a real, really fine sense of place. I think he was much more attuned to places than to people. Mm. Um, because, you know, you read all his letters, and, 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 you know, because he loved to travel. I mean, it's a big myth that Lovecraft was some sort of recluse who hold himself up in his house, you know, all day and, and wrote at night and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he loved traveling, and especially he traveled all the way up and down the eastern seaboard, all the way up to Quebec, all the way down to Key West, Florida. Uh, he loved places like Charleston and Richmond and, and all these old towns where you could look up all these things. And, and, and his letters are filled with very meticulous descriptions of the buildings and and the houses and the gardens and things so uh, uh that stuff that he writes about in letters then you know he transmutes into his fiction as well yeah um so 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 we have all these these cities that kind of interconnect the world the map you know the map the setting but there's also and at any point i just want to make a disclaimer right now at any point that i mispronounce something which i have a habit of doing just jump in and correct me because as soon as we get to the um to the old ones, I'm gonna. Yeah. Total, that's all you. So, yeah. but so the next thing is there's this kind of library of ancient and forbidden books that kind of hold the secrets mankind was never meant to have. The most famous of which, obviously, is the Necronomicon, which has showed up all over pop culture and movies and all that kind of stuff. Where did some of these books come from, and is there any validity to their existence? Are they based on real books, like the towns were, anything like that? Well, Lovecraft was very clever in. Uh, intermingling real books with fictitious books uh, in his stories and it takes sometimes considerable amount of effort to figure out which one is real and which one is not. Uh, Obviously the Necronomicon is fictitious uh, but he cites things like, well, The Golden Bough, that's a famous anthropological work by James George Fraser. Uh, uh, He cites The Witch Cult in Western Europe, that's a real work by Margaret Murray. work called, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, but Dimanolatria. That's beautiful. That's a real work. Uh, So, uh, um, yeah, he loved to intermingle these things, but he himself came up with things like the Necronomicon, uh, something called the Pnacotic Manuscripts. Um, There are several others. And then in the 30s, he and his colleagues, people like August Derleth, uh, Robert E. Howard, Robert Block, they started coming up with their own 
uh, imaginary titles, and then Lovecraft would cite them in his stories, and they, and they gained a sort of currency that way because people noticed mm. that things were coming up in different stories and said, "Oh, well, this must be real." Right. Uh, so <laughs> it, it, it was a bit of a hoax, and Lovecraft admits that it was a hoax, uh, but it, it it was meant to foster the sense of of realism in the stories. Well, I'm going to take a weird tangent right here. Uh, and if and if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll just move right along. But one of my favorite movies is Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. And in that movie, several times, Dan Aykroyd, who is famously into the paranormal and the occult, um, he's very interested in this stuff, which is how he wrote Ghostbusters. In that book, they they reference several famous kind of spiritual occultish literature, mm-hmm. uh, like Tobin's Spirit Guide. Is it was that all either in homage to Lovecraft, or is there some validity to what he was what, the books he mentions? Uh, I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen that film, and I can't kind of remember, but I could well imagine it was uh, at least a, a, a inspired by Lovecraft. I don't know that the titles they themselves mentioned came from Lovecraft, but uh, uh, certainly that that kind of thing, you know, was something that Lovecraft had fostered. Well, I can tell you this: the books don't really exist unless they exist in some molding vault laboratory like the Brown University Lovecraft files. Because mm-hmm. as a child, I was very when I was in my my teenage years, the formative years you spoke about earlier, I looked these books up and I don't think they exist. Yeah. I repeatedly looked them up. Okay, so that so we have the books. Now the third thing is this pantheon of strange godlike creatures. And this is kind of I think what separates this in tentacles and big eyeballs kind of separates um uh, not Cthulhu, but separates uh Lovecraft's work from all the other stuff. Is this like made up pantheon now, did he do this on purpose? Like something that kind of developed as he wrote the books? Um, you know, it's funny. Um, Lovecraft launched this mythos. Um, by the way, he himself didn't call it the Kula mythos. He didn't really have a name for it at all. Sometimes he referred to it as Yoxothothery uh, or Kluluism or, or uh, something like that. But uh, it was August Derleth after Lovecraft's death who called it the Kula mythos, and that name is just stuck. But. Um, Lovecraft seems to have come up with this idea in the one story, The Call of Cthulhu, uh, and it seemed to have come out of nowhere. Uh, uh, that story was in 1926, about right, right about the middle of Lovecraft's career, uh, literary career. His, his career only spanned about 20 years, um, so about 10 years into that career he wrote this story. Later on, uh, he said, oh, I got the idea for this from Lord Dunsany. Now, Lord Dunsany was a great writer of Irish, uh, uh, he was an Irishman, uh, Anglo-Irish, uh, great writer of fantasy. I think he's, his work is, is superb. It's still going on today. I, I, I've done a lot of work on Dunsany. What Dunsany did in his first two books uh, was himself create a pantheon of mythical gods. Now, the difference with that is that uh, in Dunsany, these gods are set in this sort of imaginary world uh, of Pagana, he called it Pagana, uh, uh, that, that only exists in the imagination. What Lovecraft did was take these imaginary gods and put them in the real world. And that, that's a huge difference because then they become much more powerful and much more uh, evil and, and uh, 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 you know, threatening to mankind. Now, it should also be emphasized that even though the characters in his stories call them gods, they're really just space aliens. I mean, they are just extraterrestrial entities who happen to have come to Earth uh, for one reason or another. Uh, Human beings thought that they were gods because they are so much more powerful uh, and, 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 uh, you know, incalculable and, and, and... and, and cosmic than, than we can we can imagine. So we have no vocabulary as human beings to refer to these entities except as gods. And and as a result, uh, you know, cults emerged uh, among human beings to worship these gods. Uh, but uh, Lovecraft makes it very clear that these are simply uh, extraterrestrials from outer space. Well, the one thing they have in common is they all have extreme power. They love chaos. They have impronounceable names, and they yeah. seem to be devoted to the destruction of the human race. And yet, there are several different cults that all kind of worship these creatures and call into existence the destruction that they're meant to wrought. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, Lovecraft was actually a good anthropologist. He read The Golden Bough, and he read all these other works about, about the uh, formation of religion uh, and, and how cults and religions develop. Uh, it should be emphasized, Lovecraft was an atheist. 
and 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 some people say, oh, how can he be an atheist and yet uh, envision all these gods? Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, they are gods only from our perspective, and he's very clear about that. Mm. Even certain alien entities or alien species, like uh, he has a group called the Fungi from Yugoth uh, in in the Whisper and Darkness, they themselves uh, worship some of these uh, entities. Um, uh, but what Lovecraft uh, is is uh, depicting is what one of my colleagues, David E. Schultz, referred to as an anti-mythology. What he means by that is that most religions, most mythologies, have as their purpose a way of reconciling humanity to God or the gods. Uh, they, uh, religions establish a, a, an intimate connection between human beings and their god. Lovecraft is really subverting that by saying these gods are there, but they are evil and they are meant for your destruction rather than meant, you know, meaning to, to, to support you or to uh, uh, foster your existence. So he under, you know, he, 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 he sort of reverses the whole basis uh, of, of, of the purpose of religion in a lot of his stories. Well, one of the kind of cool things, as you were talking, I just thought about this. You know, in, in popular kind of sci-fi belief, there's this thought that aliens came down earlier, this ancient aliens belief, that aliens came down for early man, early civilization, and they were, you know, they had this extreme power. Because I think there's a phrase, I forget who exactly it's attributed to, but any significantly advanced technology appears as magic. So these aliens came down you know, had this incredible technology and they were treated like gods, which is you know, one of the ideas for the genesis of like the, the Egyptian gods or, you know, the, um, you know, the Romans and Greeks and all that kind of stuff. So this is kind of interesting that I don't know if that idea was around during Lovecraft's time, but he seems to be, that's the, the basis of what he's talking about. This seems to be almost the genesis of what he's talking about. It is. About. Yeah. I mean, you take a late story like the shadow out of time. Uh, the idea there is that this, uh, uh, powerful race of creatures. He calls them the great race. Uh, they're purely mental creatures. They sort of, their minds hop from one body to the next over time uh, and, and uh, you know, to, to seek out all the secrets of the universe. Uh, and, and Lovecraft envisions that some of these minds have entered into human bodies from time to time and, and they indeed uh, led to, hum you know, the, the, the great development uh, of, of, uh, of the human race you know, from antiquity up to the present day. Um, uh, and in fact, that idea did inspire a lot of uh, later science fiction writers. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke actually was clearly inspired by that to write some of his uh, stories like uh, A Childhood's End and, and even 2001. Uh, they have a distinct Lovecraft influence based specifically on that story. Now, now, what, now the old ones themselves, they all have different powers and they have different looks. Uh, is that correct? Oh, yes. So now, can we can we talk about a couple of them? And I'll, I'm gonna let you deal with the names. Yeah, the pronunciation there is correct. Okay, yeah. so Lovecraft, in his first story, The Call of Tulu, um, imagined the, this entity called Tulu. Now, a lot of people call it, pronounce it as Cthulhu, which is absolutely wrong, but it's very difficult to get people to uh, to, to correct that pronunciation. Lovecraft, in a letter, clearly states that that it's a two-syllable word. Uh, you, uh, the th at the beginning there is is kind of like a guttural l. It's like Clulu, uh, but no matter. Clulu um, uh, and his spawn, uh, whatever they are, uh, came from outer space. Uh, they established these great cities all around the world, apparently. Um, uh, one of which was Rillier. Uh, I don't mm. I don't even know if that's the correct pronunciation, but but there you have it. Uh, <laughs> this this was in the South Pacific. Uh, uh, at some point, though, Rillier sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Trapping Kulu within, you know, within it, you know, in its uh, somewhere in there, and he so Kulu lurks down in the uh, in the depths of the sea there, uh, and the call of Kulu uh, uh, indicates that at some point, uh, you know, in, in 1925, uh, by uh, as a result of an earthquake, uh, which was a real event actually at that time in that specific area, uh, uh, Rillier rose to the surface momentarily, and Kulu got out of his. Uh, little uh, uh, his imprisonment, uh, fleetingly, uh, and and had this encounter with a with a with a boat uh, uh, in the area, but as Lovecraft says, because the stars were not right, it was not quite the right time for Tulu to emerge. Uh, really, sunk again, uh, taking Tulu back under the waves. Um, 
but the narrator who's you know has pieced together this whole story says the mere existence of Tulu, the mere fact that this entity exists under the waters, uh, you know, as a constant threat to human beings, uh, is the real source of terror. It does, it's not what Tulu can do; it's the mere fact that he's there. You know, it, it shows that 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 our uh, human uh, 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 rulership of the earth is very tenuous. And then Lovecraft built upon that idea by creating other gods who have you know somewhat similar functions. Uh, in in the Dunwich Horror, he he created a god, Gog Sothoth. Uh, he had mentioned that that entity in a in a previous story, but really didn't talk about it. But uh, the Dunwich Horror really focuses upon Gog Sothoth, who begat a pair of twins upon this backwoods farm girl, uh, and and those uh, twins were meant to be the uh, the harbingers of the of the uh, uh, you know uh, emergence of the of, of the old ones. Uh, onto humanity, but you know uh, the, the plot was foiled. Um, later on, some of Lovecraft's stories become much more science fictional, uh, and the sort of the godlike elements uh, get get reper- uh, reduced, uh, and it becomes obvious these creatures are just space aliens. Uh, I think the, the the capstone of that uh, development was the great Antarctic novella uh, at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, where he refers to these entities called the old ones, but you can tell that they're just they're just an alien species that come from the depths of space. Again, they establish colonies all over the place, especially in the Antarctic. Uh, and 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 these explorers come upon you know these these enormous remains you know that had to have been built you know millions and millions of years before humans uh, ever uh, uh, came to be. Uh, and 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 again, it's that mere realization. That, that there's this ancient species so much more powerful than us, um, uh, you know, and, 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 and it just shows how fragile our, our uh, occupancy of the Earth is. Uh, and again, the Shadow Out of Time develops that idea uh, also. So, um, as I say, each story builds upon the other, carves out different areas of this whole mythology. Uh, sometimes there are small contradictions, sometimes even some major contradictions, but Lovecraft didn't want to be uh, bound by what he had done before. Uh, he felt this was a very fluid conception, uh, you know, capable of constant uh, elaboration. Uh, and he did, to some degree, uh, welcome uh, contributions by his friends also, because he felt that uh, citing of all these different entities by different authors would enhance their sense of realism. Yeah, and, and that's what's kind of cool about it is everyone's kind of picked it up and kind of made their own story out of it. Some better, some worse. I mean, you've argued that you know some people add to the mythos, some people don't, but it's still amazing that it's alive and breathing as a as a creative endeavor. Well, I think as I say, it is capable of almost infinite expansion. Uh, I mean, sure, you can come up with your new god, your new book, but that's that's fairly unimaginative. Uh, what what the essence of the mythos is is this sense of, of cosmic alienation we can call it uh, the notion that here we are on this tiny little globe uh, surrounded by forces immensely more powerful than us uh, and so that can be uh, uh, it can be expressed in uh, two ways a sense of cosmic outsideness where things come from the outside upon the earth and also an internal horror that is to say um, in the shadow over Innsmouth, one of the, 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 the really the, the heart of that story is not uh, the fact that, that the narrator is chased around by these various you know fish-like creatures in Innsmouth. The real horror of that story is the realization that the narrator himself, through heredity, is himself one of those creatures. Uh, and, Spoiler and, and alert, there, St. It's incredible. It's, it's an incredible instance of you know internalized psychological horror. Uh, after all this stuff, all, all the effort he has made to escape these creatures, he realizes he can never escape because he's really one of them. Uh, and then he, he reconciles himself to that fate. He says, "I'm going to go back to Innsmouth and I'll plunge under the waves to go to that, you know, uh, the, 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 yeah. the city of the deep ones under the waves, and I will become one of them." It's, and that's the real terror of that story. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good one. It's one of my favorites. So now you've you've um, popped up a couple of simultaneous questions. I'm gonna try to hit them just so we don't get too far away from what I want to ask because this one may be really quick. Now, are they sleeping or are they dead? These old ones that they discover in the stories. Well, that conception uh, only really applies to Trudeau. Uh You know, oh, there's okay. that famous couplet that Lovecraft uh, you know, claimed to be from the Necronomicon. Uh, 
uh, that is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Uh, in 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 the call of Tulu, uh, Tulu is supposed to be yes, both sleeping and dead. Uh, that's the paradox of of that uh, entity. Uh, at some point, when he says the stars are right, it, uh, Tulu will awaken and, and emerge from the seas. Uh, the other entities like Yogg-Sothoth, Nyarlathotep, who who is a, it comes in many different shapes, sometimes almost human, sometimes very different from human. Um, as a thought who appears to be just a symbol of the sort of the uh, uh, inscrutability of the universe because he's called a blind idiot god. Uh, all these creatures are very different. And, and, and as I say, Lovecraft was careful not to overdefine them because he knew that, that trying to say too much about them would rob them of their sense of mystery and, 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 and uh, you know, the, the sense of cosmic menace. Because uh, as Lovecraft said in, in Supernatural Horror Literature, his great treatise, on, on the horror story, uh, uh, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Mm. So he was very careful, only to you know to have little flashes of insight about what these creatures are, and never fully define them. Well, the other interesting thing about that is, you know, the the type of horror you're talking about is the horror of the unknown, and these are aliens coming down from. You know, this is before we had landed on the moon, where we, you know, you know, H.G. Wells was writing sci-fi stories, and we had imagined the space as, as a frontier, but nothing had, you know, people the, the idea that things could come from it to us, and we would have no kind of defense against it was the fear he was kind of breeding on, especially if they're more powerful. Now, the interesting thing about him being an atheist is that I've heard an argument that. When you look at, you know, like a Christian mythos, specifically the, the Catholicism, what are angels? You know, where does God live? You know, I mean, are angels visitors from outer space? Where are they coming from? Are they coming from another dimension? When you analyze it from, you know, kind of like an academic intellectual standpoint, it's, it's kind of curious, so where are these beings coming from? And H.P. Lovecraft just kind of took it to the next horror level, and, you know, that instead of having good intentions coming here, they have bad intentions or absolutely zero regard for the human race. Indeed. Um, you know, Lovecraft claimed to be an atheist from the age of five. I don't know if it what? started really that early, but you know, he, he read a lot of you know books. He read Nietzsche. He read uh, you know uh, some of the scientists, some people like Thomas Henry Huxley, Darwin, of course, uh, Bertrand Russell later on, and, and, and people like that. Uh, you know, so he, while he himself you know, was an atheist from a pretty early age, he also realized the power of religion, and that's that's the secret of his stories because he has all these religious things, you know, the cults and the and the worshiping, because he knew that that was an inveterate human trait. Uh, and whenever we encounter anything uh, that seems to be uh, uh, godlike, we are we are inclined to worship it. Uh, and so he was very shrewd in that mm. in terms of his understanding of human psychology. That's tr- uh, that makes a lot of sense because that would explain why all the cults are so evil and why they want to. They want to they want to please the gods, and if the gods' idea is to destroy the human race, and they want to please the gods, then they would want to be putting that into into place in a way. Yes, but you know, I think Lovecraft suggests a lot of these uh, cults think they'll be around once right. the rest of the human race is wiped out. But I don't think so. I think they'll be facing elimination also. But they're they're, they're sort of uh, whistling in the dark here. Yeah, I don't I don't really understand that. But it's I mean, people do that all the time. You know, I mean, you oh, have yeah. weird cults that exist now. I mean, Heaven's Gate was about you know. I mean, in a, in a way, the sense of destruction on this planet, you'll exist in another, you yeah. know, another dimension or whatever you believe. Um, you, now, now, did the Cthulhu mythos start with uh, Dagon? Is that how you pronounce it? I assume that's easy enough to pronounce. Um, well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, I consider a lot of the stories that he left for before the call of Cthulhu in 1926 to be sort of anticipations. Of, of this mythos. Mm. He was working toward it, perhaps not even realizing what he was doing. Uh, Dagon, of course, is an actual, you know, god from the past. He was a, a god of the Philistines, you know, as mentioned in the Bible, uh, you know, as a, as a sort of an evil god. Um, uh, and what Lovecraft in that early story, uh, which dates to 1917, is suggesting is that the entity in that story is sort of a precursor or, or uh, of, of Dagon. Uh, and Lovecraft does this a lot. He says a lot of human myth is is a misunderstanding of these cosmic entities that filter down, and and you know, and and uh, we had a glimpse of them and and uh, misinterpreted their ideas, and that's how human other human mythologies came to be. Uh, you know, you can find little anticipations of the mythos 
you know, in a number of other stories, like the first story, which mentions Arkham, uh, is called The Picture in the House, but it has no other relation uh, to the mythos. Um, the first story that talks about Abdul al-Hazred, the author of the Necronomicon, is The Nameless City, uh, which was written in 1921. Uh, that story, in some sense, served as a precursor to the Mountains of Madness, but uh, uh, otherwise, you know, it's just a god about a guy, you know, exploring some ruins in, in Arabia, um, and and so on and so forth. So um, it, it still, to me, is an amazing achievement that Lovecraft would just sit down one day and write the Call of Tulu. I mean, that mythos, in some sense, was born almost entirely in that one story. If he had written nothing but that one story, I think we still would have had the Tulu mythos. Hmm. Uh, it just wouldn't. You don't think it would be as as built up or as expansive? Well, uh, maybe, but you know, as I say, uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, that many other writers uh, uh, fleshed in the mythos, you know, competently or otherwise. Uh, the idea that you know that you can have these entities coming from outer space, I mean, is 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 capable of of you know considerable expansion, um, and and you can do all kinds of things with it, uh, as many people have, and and. Many people have done actually quite well with it. I, as you may know, I wrote a book called "The Rise and Fall of the Kula Mythos." I have it in uh, front of me right now, St. Right, and I'm working on a new edition of that because actually, within the last, especially the last ten, twenty years, a lot of really good writers have come up to do very imaginative treatments uh, of the mythos, uh, much better than a lot of the writers have done in the past. Because I think we now know more about what Lovecraft was really trying to do, mm-hmm. and and that knowledge has filtered into. Um, a lot of the creative work that's going on, and so they, uh, these things are much more interesting and imaginative treatments of the mythos than they used to be. Well, and it's that book. I love that book because it's perfect for what I wanted to talk about. Because you know, you kind of go through in a chronological order um, how each one kind of how each story kind of built on the the previous one. And if he wasn't doing it intentionally, that makes the most sense. Is that as the ideas kind of came to him. You know, they started out with one dot, one dot, one dot, and then you know maybe Call of Clue he put the dots together and then it just kind of formed, kind of came into yeah, existence. Yeah, I think certainly by the much time like he wrote the Call of Cthulhu and then by the Dunwich Horror, I think by that time he said, yeah, this this is really, you know, coming to be something. This is, the, my stories, you know, add up to more than the sum of their parts. And it was actually even then, even before he wrote uh, the Dunwich Horror, uh, uh, his young friend Frank Belknap Long had already written a, a story in which some of these ideas were being used. It's called The Space Eaters. Uh, and then he wrote the, the Hounds of Tindalos, and pretty soon thereafter, uh, Robert E. Howard got into the act, and, and Derleth, and, and Donald Wandry, and Robert Block. So even within Lovecraft's lifetime, there were a fair number of people who were, who were elaborating on the mythos. Well, um, now, one, now since we've been talking about the stories, there is I just want to make this point for people who aren't familiar with his work, and this is the kind of stuff that was cool to me. So I read The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and then I read The Thing on the Doorstep, and what's kind of cool about that, and this is the kind of small little connections we're talking about, one of the main characters in there is she's, they're not living in Innsmouth, but she is a family from Innsmouth, and people kind of know their past. Like yeah, know yeah. about the city, and it's never really brought up. The story's never brought up, but you kind of, you, if you've read the story before, you get it, and that's just one of those weird little connecting things that kind of brings it to life. You know, makes it. Pop. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, and the thing is, I, it, it's as if Lovecraft expected you almost to read his stories uh, in the order in which they were written, so that you oh. can pick up on all these things. Well, that you just beat me to my next question. I was going to ask you, what is the next order? What is the best order? Do you think to kind of be introduced to the? Clulu mythos, and you're yeah, saying read I think, them in order. I think it is a very good idea to read Lovecraft stories in chronological order, and you can do so if I may say so. Uh, I, I, I have two editions. Uh, well, uh, Barnes and Noble asked me to put it put together the Lovecraft's complete stories in one volume, and it can be done. It's a pretty big volume. It's called H.P. Lovecraft: The Complete Fiction. It's actually a sort of a bargain book. Uh, I have it in ST. I have that in front of me too. I'm going to put these up on my Pinterest page because I literally have that book in front of me and your other one you just talked about. Well, yeah, that uh, that is the first time that Lovecraft stories, all of them, uh, were printed in chronological order, and I think that is a great way to read Lovecraft stories. Now you have to understand <laughs> some of his early stories are apprentice work. They're not they're not uh, you know as you know fine as some of the others, but even those have a lot of interest in them. Uh, but as I say, you, you see how the development of Lovecraft as a writer, from writing these relatively short stories of the macabre to, to stories that have a much broader uh, uh, perspective, much broader scope, and it, it, you know, the stories get longer and longer. I mean, some of those are rather hard to, to digest, you know, certainly in one sitting. Uh, it takes multiple readings, I think, of some of those longer stories to really 
get what they're about, but nevertheless, they're they're very rewarding, and and to see how how Luster has developed within a very short period of time, relatively speaking, uh, into this this incredible writer. Yeah, well, I want to give you give that book a quick plug again because I picked it up at Barnes and Noble. I'm not going to give the price, but it was very affordable, and I was excited because then now I have every book in front of me, and then I saw that you wrote the introduction, and I didn't know that you actually put the book together. I mean, it's a great yeah. book. It looks it's one of their beautiful like bound books, like kind yeah, of old sort of looking leather bound book. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't list me as editor, but maybe they just don't do that in general. But uh, uh, I did edit that book, and I pre- pre- you know prepared my corrected text. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's time for another plug, but the other edition that I'm Always just, time. it's not out yet. It's what is called uh, 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 the, a very firm edition of Lovecraft. Now, what that is, is a, a printing of Lovecraft stories with all the various textual variants. Uh, by that, I mean all the, you know, uh, I looked at each story, looked at all the publications of each story and, and, and indicated all the, the mistakes that had appeared in various uh, previous editions. Now, that, <laughs> that you know, uh, maybe many people don't understand the value of that, but it shows how a story, you know, got from the author's pen uh, up, up to today, and it's a very illuminating, hmm. because what happens is uh, some of his early stories, and even some of the later ones, Lovecraft revised the story from one one printing to the next, and some of the revisions are very interesting. Hmm. Uh, and I even go back to manuscripts where he's uh, scratched out some. You know, as he was writing the story, he he started writing something. He said, "Oh no, that doesn't work." I cross it out, and I print that out. Uh, I print it in the footnote uh, the, the patches that he's crossed out, and that that's also very interesting to show how this story developed as Lovecraft was writing it. Yeah. Well, you know, now let's let's a good turn transition. Let's talk about Lovecraft the person while we finish up because he to me is just as fascinating as the stories that he wrote when you start learning about the guy in general. Um now now first of all, how would you describe his horror? I mean like well, it's not really horror in the truest sense, you know. Um well, it, it you know, it went through stages, but I think he started initially writing horror stories derived largely from Poe. Uh, Lovecraft, you know, read Poe when he was eight years old. I mean, he called him his god of fiction. Uh, and a lot of the early stories do do derive from Poe. Hmm. Then he came upon Lord Dunsany in 1919. Uh, and I say Dunsany wrote fantasy rather than horror. And so Lovecraft wrote a bunch of stories <clears throat> of, of, a, of, you know, of imaginary world fantasy uh, derived from Dunsany. Later on, he read writers like Arthur Mackin, Algernon Blackwood. These are all great classic writers of horror stories. You, you all ought to read them. Um, and, and that's when his work started, you know, developing in its uh, scope. Um, and so later on, Lovecraft described his work as non-supernatural cosmic art. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm, I don't think the supernatural ever uh, was totally abandoned, but it became, his work became much more science fiction-like, although his emphasis was always on uh, cosmic terror. He never wanted to write pure science fiction. Uh, that genre had started in his day, and he he liked the work of H.G. Wells. He liked some of the other writers uh, of his own day who were writing science fiction. Um, but he always associated himself with the field of supernatural horror. Hmm. Uh, but it's this sense of the cosmic that that really is his signature contribution. Well, now, now let's talk about H.P. Lovecraft, the guy, because you said he was an atheist, yeah. and he was also he's also a, a racist, and was well, also around like during the the Nazis. Like, he was was not necessarily a Nazi sympathizer, but he you know sympathized with Hitler. He definitely thought he was doing some right things, which is kind yeah, of interesting. That's a, that's a very complex issue. I mean, it's been a, it's been a, an ongoing debate recently in in, in various online venues. Um, there's no denying Lovecraft was a racist, uh, but I think a lot of that came from his upbringing as, as a very conservative, uh, you know, New Englander. You have to realize he was born 1890. That was exactly the time over the next 20 to 30 years when there was an enormous influx of, of uh, people from into the United States from overseas, especially from places like uh, you know Southern Europe and and Asia and and Latin America, and what were called the, the old Americans, you know, uh, were, were frightened that, that their own culture was going to be overwhelmed by this huge influx of, of, of uh, foreigners, as they called them. Uh, and, you know, and to some degree, there was a real fear because, because there was also a lot of social change going on through developments in technology and things like that. And I think Lovecraft used racism or used these, you know, aliens or foreigners, whatever we call them, as scapegoats for a sense of his own alienation 
from American culture because it was developing in ways that he didn't like. He liked, you know, he was associated with the past. He, he wanted to kind of, I wouldn't say go back to a, uh, an idyllic past, but he didn't like these trends in, in American society, uh, especially with things like industrialization and, and, and uh, uh, mechanization. He felt that that was impoverishing culture, and I think he used, you know, uh, racism as kind of a scapegoat. Um, and, and you have to also understand that um, uh, many other people in that age were racist. I mean, and many other writers as well. Jack London was. Uh, Robert E. Howard was a, actually much more virulent racist than Lovecraft uh, down in Texas. Some of the stories he wrote are really quite appalling in that regard. Yeah. Um, so, you know. So I you're think, saying he's more like Archie race... Bunker, is what you're saying. He's well, more like Archie Bunker I, than he is. But like, I think uh, the racism issue has been blown Quigles. way out of proportion. It was not a major uh, aspect of Lovecraft's thinking. Uh, there were many other things about about him that that you know that are actually to me my much more significant. I think his uh, his atheism, his devotion to the past, his sense of, of aesthetic integrity are so much more interesting and so much more important to him as a writer and as a human being. Uh, I mean, it's it's significant that a lot of people wrote memoirs of Lovecraft uh, after his death, and not one of them, you know, emphasized this racial issue. In it. Every one of them, without exception, said he was one of the most interesting and one of the kindest, most generous human beings they had ever met. So I think we have to take that into perspective also. Well, definitely. But, I mean, you know, like the shadows over Innsmouth, you could easily say that that's a fear of interbreeding. Oh, absolutely it is. Would, uh, I mean, there's, there's no denying that. Um, and, and there there are, you know, there are traces of, of racist uh, ideology in some of the other stories. But in my mind, those are pretty minor. But, yeah, I mean, the shadow over Innsmouth, I think, is founded upon a racist principle, and yet it's still a great story. I mean, let's be honest, it is, it is a masterful work of cosmic horror, uh, precisely because uh, he unites this idea of external horror and internal horror in a, in a very ingenious and powerful way. That's my favorite story. Well, now, I'm not making the... the I, first of all, I think the racist thing is interesting just as one of his characteristics, but I'm making this connection probably for a different reason than most people are. And you, I, mean, I know you did mention that he was, in some other interviews, that he did like what Hitler was doing. And I mention this because anyone who studied the Nazis and that in, in Germany at that time know that the Nazis were very much into occult beliefs and all this kind of strange stuff. You know, and Aleister Crowley, I don't know if, and I kind of want to make a connection with Aleister Crowley too. I don't know if H.P. Lovecraft was at any part, you know, drawn to either either of those entities for those reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, when Hitler first emerged, basically in 1933, uh, Lovecraft did write a few letters that are, shall we say, now embarrassing, that, you know, in which he, he praised Hitler. He says, you know, yeah, Hitler's kind of a clown, but I can't help liking the boy, that sort of thing. I don't think Lovecraft really knew much about the Nazis at that time. I don't think he had any. I, I have read no letters in which he talks about their occultist uh, inclination. In fact, mm. he himself actually, uh, you know, despised occultism. He thought it was just stupid and, you know, uh, a, a, a complete misreading of, of, of science. Uh, so he had very little regard for occultism. I mean, he includes it in his stories as, as you know, just for... Uh, for atmosphere, but he himself was not a, not a believer in the cult at all because he was a you know scientific rationalist. Hmm. Um, uh, hmm. There is one one account. Apparently, in 1936, a neighbor of Lovecraft, uh, who had German ancestry, apparently had gone back to Germany, but then came right back. She's saying, "Oh my God, all this horrible stuff is going on with you know these they're, they're uh, you know with all this stuff they're doing with the Jews." Uh, and Lovecraft and his aunt were apparently quite appalled by 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 this. Uh, we don't really hear about this, but Lovecraft basically just shut up on the issue after that. Um, well, his uh, wife was Jewish, yeah? Yeah, but, and then people say, oh, well, what, there's a certain paradox in that, but, but not really. Um, he, you know, what he and many others of that time uh, believed is that uh, foreigners, as we call them foreigners, uh, when they come to the United States, are supposed to assimilate themselves to the general population. That was the kind of the prevailing myth or, or expectation. Uh, and he felt that his wife, Sonia, had done that, that she had sort of renounced her uh, Jewishness and had become just an American. And, and so she was all right. Uh, you know, and, and he had, he were, you know, there were other, other friends of his, like Samuel Loveman, who was also Jewish, who became a wonderful poet. Uh, and he felt that Loveman was completely assimilated, that, that uh, the, he, didn't, he didn't cling to his Jewishness the way uh, other people did, and so he was all right. 
<laughs> he is like Archie Bunker. I mean, he's a racist, but a fear of change. Well, the thing is, you have to realize that Lovecraft didn't live through the Holocaust and, and, and things like that. And, yeah. you know, racism was still a, an intellectually respectable uh, idea at the time. I mean, it had not been overthrown yet. Uh, it was in the course of being overthrown in, in Lovecraft's later years. Uh, but, but many scientists believe that racism was founded on fact. You know that there were biological, uh, bi- there was biological evidence that some races were superior to others. I mean, it was it was you know embodied in encyclopedias and all kinds of scholarly books. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it does it does annoy me when people look back in time and condemn people for beliefs that everyone held at that time and hold them yeah. by today's standards. Like I don't I don't really like that. I mean, look at the founding fathers. Everyone talks about how great the Constitution is, and it's like yeah, if you read it word for word, but every one of them owned slaves. Exactly. And, and, and you know, <laughs> black people were three, what, three-fifths of a person. And that's, that's in the right. Constitution. And, I mean, that's crazy. You know, but you, everyone holds them up under the ideals of today. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm not saying it was right. I just don't think that they should be lambasted for it. I just happen to found, and unfortunately, it's not, doesn't, didn't lead us to anything. But I thought it was interesting that he sympathized with the Nazis in a, in a way, in a sense. Um, but it would, didn't lead to their occultism, which I thought would have been a great thing. It was not. Mm. So swing and a miss, ST, for me. Um, now, a couple of things before, while we're finishing up. Did Anna? You know, you know. Do you ever watch Japanese anime? Oh yeah, a little bit. There's lots of tentacles in that, and I never understood why there were so many tentacles in like Cthulhu stuff. You know what I mean? Like maybe not necessarily in the. Lo- I guess let me back up a second. Do you, are you familiar with like a lot of the pop culture ex- um, extensions of the the Cthulhu mythos? Like the board games, like the... Um, oh, yeah, to, to some degree, sure. Now, those kind of all... Tentacles seem to be like a really big thing, big eyeballs. What is... Is that just based on people taking one thing and expanding upon it, or...? Yeah, I think, so. I think they fixated upon this uh, uh, entity, Clulu. I think both because that name is so so bizarre and so, you know, peculiar-looking. Whereas the other names are actually, you know, like Yog sothoth is actually sort of more human, because mm. what Lufra was saying is that that name was invented by Al-Hazred, uh, Abdul Al-Hazred, in the Necronomicon, and he, he, he interpreted a, 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 an alien name through his own Arabic uh, language. But Kuru mm. is a purely alien name. Again, that was uh, prototypically a name not meant to be pronounced by human vocal cords. So even though Kulu is not necessarily the most important or uh, uh, most powerful of these gods, uh, that entity has sort of seized the uh, the popular imagination. And and you know I think we have to go back to the fact that Lovecraft uh, personally <laughs> hated seafood. Um, hmm. He apparently got violently ill when he ate seafood, so he couldn't stand even the sight of it or the smell of it or anything. Uh, so anything from the sea <laughs> for him was a, a was a particularly horrible thing. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, the idea of the, of Pluto and his tentacles, uh, you know, was was a, a uniquely frightening thing for Lovecraft, and that's been picked up by a lot of other people. Um, <laughs> that's but a... you know, I think that um, uh, what I was going to say, um, yeah, the Japanese anime, there there are clear relations uh, or, or to that uh, tracing back to Lovecraft. I mean, it's clear that they picked up a lot of that from from Lovecraft. Yeah, it's amazing. I, that's a cool little tidbit. I didn't know that about HP. Um, now, now, what do you think, last question, what do you think is the main overarching theme of all of his work? I would argue that it's the one's battle with sanity. Yes, that is it. I think the, the, the notion Nailed that our, our psychological uh, uh, well-being is very fragile, that it can be overwhelmed by any number of factors. Again, that it just goes to the, that whole sense of human insignificance in the universe we are a, we are a, you know an insignificant minor uh, species uh, beset by in, enormous cosmic forces and and uh, you know anything can come and, and dislodge our sanity and, and you know we become gibbering uh, lunatics um, <laughs> Lovecraft, you know and the, the funny thing is Lovecraft himself was a great rationalist you know we have to emphasize that over and over again uh, and yet he had little confidence in human beings ability to, to face the truth. You know, what, what T.S. Eliot said, human beings cannot stand too much reality. Uh, I think Lovecraft uh, uh, was uh, along that same line, because, and he felt that religion was a kind of crutch that, that shielded us from the real truth about the universe, because we invent these gods that are, that are benign and that have, uh, you know, uh, uh, devotion to us, and that, uh, that we, uh, we are uh, under their care when the reality is very different. 
and that's what he was devoted to uh, depicting in his story. Boom, nailed it. What a great way to end. Um, mm -hmm. ST, thank you so much for sitting with me. Um, sure. now, now, what, what, what do you got to plug? Any books, anything coming out soon? Well, Any websites? Say, um, what do you got? Uh, you know, it's funny because um, I have become also a an editor of Neo Lovecraftian fiction of, of Tulu Mythos fiction. I've been, been doing a lot of that lately. Is that right? Um, uh, I just came out with the, the first volume of a, of a, of a uh, anthology called The Madness of Tulu, uh, which is a, a, a two volume set. Next one's going to come out next year, uh, using At the Mounds of Madness as a kind of a springboard. And you have a lot of interesting authors who have contributed to this book, like Harry Turtledove. You'd never think Harry Turtledove would write a Lovecraft story, but he did. Heather Graham and Alan Dean Foster and Kevin J. Anderson and, and Caitlin Kiernan and a lot of good writers in that book. Uh, Wait, no, not the Heather Graham. The Heather, the Heather Graham? From, uh... Uh, there, there's, there's an actress named Heather Graham. That's yeah. not it. There's, oh. a, there's a best-selling writer who's also named Heather Graham. Boo. <laughs> Two different people. <laughs> okay. But, they, but she's a fine, fine writer, and she wrote a really good story about uh, uh, Antarctic exploration uh, based on Lovecraft. It was a lot of fun. That's great, um, and I'll throw your your uh, websites on on the um, on your on your on the page I have on on my website, and they can mm -hmm. check out all your work. And it's it's definitely uh, detailed and it's complete. I mean, you've done you've looked at this guy backwards and forwards. Yeah, I sure have. You sure have. Um, well, St. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. This has been enlightening. Um, I I've just discovered Lovecraft, and I feel like I don't know anything. So this has been. Very, everything's new to me, so this yeah. Is well, great. there's a lot to learn, and I've I've, I've been, uh, had a great time talking with you. Great, thank you, and thanks okay. to everyone for listening. Have okay. a good night.